Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. In this episode, we're going to talk about the action, thriller, home run hit, The Fugitive. Plot of this film, after being wrongfully convicted for the murder of his wife and unjustly sentenced to death, Dr. Richard Kimball escapes from custody and sets out to find his wife's killer to clear his name, all while being pursued by a team of U.S. Marshals led by Deputy Sam Gerard. A classic film, one I'm very excited to be doing. Uh, always been a childhood favorite of both of ours. We've watched it numerous times. Yeah, we both loved this movie growing up. I still love it today and enjoyed watching and prepping for this episode. And in talking about the plot, the narrative and concept of the film, it was based on the 1960s television series of the same name. Uh, It aired on ABC from September 1963 to August 1967, Four seasons, 120 episodes. It was nominated for five Emmys, and it won the Best Drama Series Emmy in 1966, Year of the Batman movie. And TV Guide voted the show 36 on the 50 greatest TV shows ever. So the TV show had a great legacy, uh, even before the film. And oddly enough, talking about the film, of course, as we are today, most of the actors and people involved in the film Never watched the TV series before they before they filmed it, uh, which I thought was kind of a weird wrinkle, but you want to make it your own so I can see where that's coming from. But I was shocked to see that it was as acclaimed as it was. I, I knew there was a TV series, but I didn't realize that it actually won Emmy for Best Drama Series and, and all the uh, critical acclaim that it got. The lead actor was nominated, I believe, like four seasons in a row for Best Lead Actor in a Series, so it... It had, you know, a a consistent quality throughout its run. Some major differences between the TV show and the movie that I found quite interesting. Uh, Kimball is a pediatrician in Indiana in the show. However, in the movie, he's a surgeon in Chicago. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's pretty close. A slight adjustment. Yeah, he's a doctor. I think they just, for for movie purposes, it probably served the story better to have it in a big metropolitan city. Uh, The... Another difference, the one-armed man does not have a prosthetic arm in the show as he does in the film. Yeah, I believe in uh, speaking of the, the all-time lists and whatnot, the the character of the one-armed man in the TV series was like one of the top five villains of all time, according to TV Guide magazine. It was, uh, it was there was a lot of good characters in that show. But one last interesting thing about the TV series: the first three seasons shot in black and white. And then they converted to color in the fourth season. If that kind of helps you date it a little bit. Other differences uh, that I found uh, interesting. uh, Events take place over several years in the television show. They they really stretched it out. In the film, all the events take place over the course of several months. So, for obvious reasons. I mean, just for the medium and the format that you're telling the story. And really, you say several months. The timeline between the murder of his wife and then being sentenced to prison, you don't really know how much time takes place. You have to assume that it's several months, given that the justice They really system- speed through that part of the story, don't they? Kind of like Shawshank Redemption does in a very similar fashion. I mean, they just blow right by the legal process, and before you know it, they're both in jail. That's kind of actually, I mean, that's kind of what I really love about this movie is that 
when I was watching it this, this time to, to prepare for the podcast, I, I, I was paying attention to that and thought to myself, okay, here he's on the bus, uh, or Tommy Lee Jones is getting ready to set up and chase him. How, how far into the movie are we, uh, as far as, um, the setting, the scene for him being in prison or being on his way to prison. And it's 12 minutes into the film where he's on the wow. bus going to the, before the, you know, that big action sequence take uh, action sequence mm-hmm. takes place. Think about everything that they had to do writing wise to set up the movie. Think about they how established much established it pretty quickly. Yeah. And the ma- amazing thing is the movie doesn't suffer for it. You get the sense just like you do in Shawshank. You see how the deck is stacked against both characters and how it could easily be perceived that they're guilty, even when they really are innocent. Right. And, and you automatically are, you know, you clearly know Kimball is innocent from an audience perspective, but you it sets the movie up. You find that man. <laughs> it you set, find this man. It, it sets it up so well in, in just a very short span of time. I'll, I appreciate that more now, but it's very impressive that they were able to write the opening the way they did. And the pacing of the movie overall mm. is excellent. Mm. So a great crop of writers coming, uh, coming out of, of this film and, and what they did with it. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the action scene, uh, the last major show uh, in, in movie difference, he escapes from a derailed train in the show. In the movie, it's a crash bus hit by a train that ultimately derails. So they did tie in the train derailment that came from the show, but they changed the nature of the crash and the way that he escaped. And you, know, you mentioned the train slash bus wreck. One of the best action sequences of uh, definitely 90s films. It's very memorable, but we have to talk about right there with where they jumped the, uh, the bus and speed exactly, over the, yeah. the highway gap. Yeah. Everyone thinks of it. Yeah. The cool thing about this is they really wrecked a train through a real bus. It, that was a cost a million bucks. Yeah. And they did it in one take. What are they going to pull a James Cameron and have the Titanic sink twice? I mean, you, you want to get that right the first time. Yeah. And I don't think Andrew Davis has the cachet that James Cameron did or does today. And speaking of the director, Andrew Davis, one of the main reasons he got this job was under siege. Harrison Ford saw the film, very impressed with his work and signed on. Andrew Davis did a couple Steven Seagal movies, which I absolutely love. He did under siege and he did above the law. <laughs> so a couple, nice. couple of those Cheesy Seagull movies. Also did a Chuck Norris movie, Code of Silence, preceding this film. And this seems to be the peak of his career because after I would say, this, yeah. not a lot yeah. of big hits. Chain Reaction, Collateral Damage with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and he has no major directing credits since 2006. Huh. Okay. And on that train wreck that he filmed, the wreckage can actually still be seen today if you ride on the Great Smoky Mountain Railroad in North Carolina you can actually see the uh, the wreckage from it. It's a, it's a tourist attraction, so to speak, when mm-hmm. you're on the uh, on that route there. So it, pretty cool. They left it in, kind of reserved the posterity of that. And they use a lot of real world locations. Didn't shoot in Los Angeles or New York or on the sound stages, all that much, if at all. And so it does create a lot of tourist attractions. That is pretty neat how they did preserve that. It's probably just a pain in the ass to clean up. So probably more laziness than anything as opposed to nostalgia. But uh, some other locations. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, Tennessee, North Carolina, the Smoky Mountains, as you mentioned. And, of course, Chicago were the main locations that they did film in. Uh, shot in 73 days. So pretty uh, efficient uh, production for a film of this, uh, of this size. Well, they did move around a lot, not only in addition to North Carolina, Tennessee, they did, of course, 
go to Chicago for a, a good chunk of the movie, uh, uh, using those big scenes, including the St. Patrick's Day parade, which was originally unplanned, but they got permission from the city to actually shoot during the real St. Patty's Day parade in in Chicago. So I, I thought that was pretty cool that they incorporated that element into the film and organically worked around it. Yeah, that is pretty neat. And that's just a, a filmmaker taking advantage of opportunities. And sometimes that comes when you have a limited budget and you have to kind of think outside the box. Some of the best films are made that way. Most famously Spielberg with Jaws. Perhaps Davis, even though he had some success, probably didn't have a lot of power as a director. So he had to kind of figure out ways to maximize uh, you know, what, it, what he was working with. What's crazy is that because they were shooting it during the real parade, that's not something you can, all right, let's pause the parade and set up this shot. So a lot of it was done on the fly during the real parade. I'm I'm sure that they had some elements that were staged, but a lot of the extras that were involved did not, you know, did not expect to see Harrison Ford standing next to them. So you can actually see the visible surprise if you pay close attention when watching the movie. Uh, they do a good job of hiding it uh, through camera tricks and stuff like that, but a lot of those extras were not, quote-unquote, expecting that. Can't talk about the film without discussing James Newton Howard's score. He also partnered with Hans Zimmer in the Dark Knight score, which is one of my favorites uh, soundtracks ever. This is a very effective score, very memorable, very powerful. The theme carries through the film but it sucks you in at the same time it's integral to the set to setting the tone of the film that's what it is as far as uh, the certain sequences you know when you have the overhead shots or the um, the establishment yeah, like shots. when he steals the ambulance and you're kind of like he's on the run and you're i mean the score really aids the film in, in, in creating as you said the tone and in getting the audience invested in that moment and it's kind of sneaky good the, the, the soundtrack is if you're not paying attention to it yeah it'll jump out at you during certain times but most of the time of the movie it's it's very much just a layer underneath the the thrilling action sequences or the kind of the tension that's going on you don't really notice it it just it subconsciously adds to the vibe so unless you're really like sitting back and thinking about it and paying attention to it I mean there are again certain examples of that where it does come out more but a lot of times it just there again to integrate you into the film and uh, and really push the action and the 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 tension yeah james newton howard i have to say it's probably one of his best scores he does on his own i mean dark knight he partnered with hans zimmer but uh, this is one of the most memorable i can think of and the more i do this podcast the more i see his name come up i'm like oh james newton Newton howard scored this oh he scored that so uh, an impressive body of work and uh, one of his uh, finest uh, performances uh, with the soundtrack of this film. What's crazy is the they and it's so good. In fact, the soundtrack that in 2009 they uh, released a a two disc set of the Fugitive soundtrack. It's over two hours long. It's called the Fugitive Limited Edition Expanded Archival Collection, <laughs> wow. and it's just. An hour of previously unreleased uh, music, uh, the score of the film. So think about that. Wow. Tom always tells the truth with art. And 18 years later, the music was so beloved that they packaged it and re-released it for fans to appreciate it still in the current day. Yeah, a soundtrack that's almost as long as the movie itself. (laughs) Wow. 
And we'll move on to the stars of the picture in a, a, a massive ensemble, two Oscar winners, three Emmy winners, and an Oscar nominee, all with the leading man himself, Harrison Ford, as Richard Kimball. This is the fourth Harrison Ford film we have done on this podcast. Oh, shit. Is that right? Yeah. I don't yeah. think any actor comes close to matching Ford. I did the numbers. Uh, of course, you have Star Wars Episode Four, Blade Runner in Season 1, and right. then we kicked off Season 2 with Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then here we have The Fugitive. So probably the four top Harrison Ford films uh, ever, or what he's at least most known for, uh, we've already done in what a season and a half. <laughs> well, we'll do more. I would like to do another Indiana Jones, but that's crazy. I didn't even think about that four in like uh, 30 episodes. Probably wow. do Air Force One as well, I, I got to say. Yeah. I, think that, I think Air Force One qualifies. Die hard on yeah. Air Force One, man. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a good... Uh, it speaks to Ford's greatness that we've already done four of his movies. The, it does. Some of the, the, the films that he's been in. I mean, he's played two of the greatest motion picture heroes ever in Indiana Jones and Han Solo. So, Well, he had a lot of star power back in the late 70s, the 80s, and then, of course, the 90s here. Yeah, so, his, yeah. his movie star was shining brightest uh, in 1993 when he was doing this movie. Uh, last film of his to be nominated for Best Picture. That dates to today. Ford's biggest commercial hit since Indiana Jones. So this was a huge uh, hit for his career and 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 invalidated him in in the '90s. You know he had been popular, you know, in the '70s and the '80s, and this, uh, you know, of course with Indiana Jones and Star Wars, but this uh, popularized him a whole new way, playing a whole new character in a in a, in a whole different movie uh, in a non-franchise film, which to this point he'd mostly done franchises. He was the first actor to sign on September 1992. Uh, after, as I said, he saw Under Siege. Uh, was so impressed with Andrew Davis's work. He's, he wanted to work with him, and uh, that, that led to him uh, you know, joining the film. And I have to mention that he was not the first choice for the role. Uh, that would actually have been Alec Baldwin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, Baldwin was hot back in the day. He was, uh, he was a leading man. Yeah, think about it. Baldwin was Jack Ryan in Hunt for Red October, and who replaced him in the next uh, Tom Harrison Clancy. Ford. Harrison Ford, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't know why Baldwin dropped out or what happened, but Ford stepped in. Uh, at one time, Nick Nolte was attached to the project and, and was a front runner for it. Because before uh, uh, Davis came on, the uh, director, I think it's William Hill, the guy who directed uh, 48 Hours. He was attached to the project, and he wanted Nick Nolte to be in it. And then, you know, Nick Nolte felt he was too old for the part, even though he's only a year older than Harrison Ford. So that, you know, for whatever reason, Ford didn't probably pan out. played younger though than than Nolte did. Oh, for yeah, for sure. Because yeah. I was watching, I was like, man, how old it was Ford when this was made? He was fifty-one, but you don't think that when you watch. Nah, it. he looks like late, well, early forties, maybe like mid, I'd early say, mid, yeah. mid forty, like forty-two to forty-five in the film. Because even the beard's got gray, he still wears it really good. Yeah, and you think about you know somebody who gets out of the bus and makes the leap and is on the run through the forest. You don't imagine a guy in his 50s can do that, but you don't have any problem watching Harrison Ford do it. Well, he, uh, did, injure, he did injure himself. He tore ligaments uh, running through the forest, so his age did catch up with him making the movie. And he chose not to get surgery on that torn ligament until after filming was done, so that limp that you see him with as he's running through the forest is, is real. So I, that was 
That was a cool touch, I thought. And speaking of the beard that I mentioned that he wore so well, the studio was not happy. Warner Brothers paid for that face, and so when Harrison Ford elected to start the film with the beard, they were not pleased, but there was an artistic choice for this. Instead of having to come up with a disguise when he was on the run, Harrison Ford and the uh, makeup team of the film kind of collaborated and decided it would be better if he started the film with a beard and then he's shaven, and as Harrison Ford, he's in disguise. And it makes sense because without beard to no beard, you know, being able to disguise himself, especially going back to a hospital he used to work. I mean, it just really, it just wouldn't have worked out. So, mm. um, other almost, uh, actors for the part, Kevin Costner, Andy Garcia, and Michael Douglas were all considered for the role. And one of the few action films in Harrison Ford's filmography where he does not kill anyone. Oh shit. Oh Yeah. It's a good point. It's a good now point. Now that and the Crystals Indiana Jones movie, which I've stricken from the record, I need the Men in Black device to just wipe out my memory of that movie. I just pretend that it's just the trilogy. This movie actually did have a little bit to do with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull getting made. Oh God, don't say that. Yeah, I, unfortunately, Lucas saw this and imagined an Indiana Jones in his fifties, and that kind of planted the seed. Of course, we didn't get the movie until many, many years later, but it did make Lucas think it could be done. Well, this has got to be right after Last Crusade came out. I mean, it's got to be pretty close uh, within a few years. Um, other stars of the cast, uh, Sella Ward as Helen Kimball, Emmy winner, uh, essentially a glorified co-star in this film, a victim of the week. I mean, it's kind of like my role in Castle. You know, she's just a dead person driving the story. You have to have that part in the in the film, but there's not a whole lot of meat there. It's just a, a couple of scenes, but... Uh, it was, it, I mean, she did great for what, what little she had and to she, do. And so. She's had such a, a decorated career as, like I said, an Emmy winning actress. And she's been, she was, went on to be in big films, most recently Gone Girl and Independence Day 2. She played the president. It, it was some mm. big roles, but oh, I would yeah. still say this is the film she's, one of the films she's most known for, certainly, if not the most known. Just because of her face in the movie, it's such a, a scene film by the, the world that that's what people identify her from. Yeah, I mean, it's just the popularity of, of the film, I think. Um, I, I do want to mention a couple uh, brief actors here. Uh, Julianne Moore, her character. An Oscar uh, winner herself is Dr. Anne Eastman. Yep. She was supposed to be a love interest to Dr. Richard Kimball, but a lot of her parts got cut from the film because they didn't think it played well, having a guy who's avenging his dead wife you know, have another love interest. It didn't, it, w- it wouldn't have worked well. It would have been a distraction from the action and the, the, the main drive of the movie. So I'm mm-hmm. glad they, I'm glad they cut it. But when you watch the film, you think, wow, Julianne Moore, why didn't she have more to do? And I, I believe that was part of it. Granted, she wasn't as well known then, but this part did end up leading to an interview with Steven Spielberg that led into her role in Jurassic Park, the lost world. Mm-hmm. So it, it did help her a lot, but uh, a lot of what you see in the film is not what she was originally there to do. Yeah. Pretty small part for an actor of her stature. And she's really good in the two scenes she's in. Uh, she's given a couple moments to shine and I think she does really well with it. Doesn't overplay it. Uh, of course, go on to have an illustrious career, 96 credits, big Lebowski episode. We did earlier this season, hunger games, dozens and dozens of films won the Oscar for still Alice. Uh, so a great actress uh, on the rise in this film and, 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 Really, they were lucky to have her for the couple scenes they got her for. 
Got to mention the villains, uh, Andreas Katsolas, I hope I'm saying that right, as Sykes, the one-armed man most known for Babylon 5 and Hot Shots Part 2. Also, mm. Executive Decision, so some classic 90s. Oh, Executive Decision, another yeah. Seagal movie. Hell yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, and Jerome Crabb as Dr. Charles Nicholas, I hope I'm saying that right, most known for uh, a Bond film, Living Daylights, and the, mm-hmm. the first Punisher film in the late 80s. Uh, he plays the baddie, the hefty, uh, in this movie. And you have to mention Jane Lynch as Dr. Kathy uh, Woland from Glee, Emmy winner. She was only in, what, one scene, but uh, still memorable, and people still identify her. A, a couple scenes, and it was it. kind of um, surprising to, to see her. I, even watching the movie this time, I was like, oh, shit, she's in this film. I completely forgot. It's one of those where every time you see her, you forget that she was in it, and it kind of you have to – kind of check yourself. It's like, oh, shit, is that her? But, yeah, yeah it's kind of cool. Yeah, because uh, she, she looks so young. She's got a baby face in this, and, and, and she still looks great now. Don't get me wrong. It's just hard to recognize her because she just looks different now. Well, plus uh, she also plays different types of characters yeah, now. Yeah, she does, yeah. 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 Uh, another mention, Ron Dean, who plays Detective Kelly. This guy's made a living playing detectives in movies, played a <laughs> detective in The Dark Knight, another movie we covered last season. Also was a detective in Above the Law, Steven Seagal movie, so – uh, looks like Andrew Davis called him up for for this film as well. Um, and you have to mention a couple of these classic character actors that we've seen. We know their face, don't know their name. Richard Ryle, the old guard on the bus who has to change his bullshit story. He was in Office Space, the guy in the hey, wheelchair. It was Tom. Yeah. Tom from Office Space, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he has 405 acting credits. That oh, guy wow. has been in a bunch of stuff. And Nick Searcy as Sheriff Rockins, uh, he has 127 credits. That's the guy at the crime scene that's arguing with Tommy Lee Jones. Well, I'm going to get all these people upset if I set up these checkpoints. That guy, you've seen him in dozens of stuff. So the film utilizes a lot of those great character actors, the faces we recognize from so many movies and TV shows that we love. Yeah. One final fun uh, character that was in the film, uh, or actor, I should say, Dick Cusack played... Kimball's lawyer and if that last name sounds familiar it should that is John and Joan Cusack's dad he was the the lawyer mm. for Richard Kimball in the film oh that was cool Joey Pantliano as Deputy Cosmo Renfro we all know him from Sopranos Bad Boys The Matrix he's the comedic relief in the film I mean the U.S. Marshal crew is the comedic relief but he is the main guy other than Gerard that that really carries scenes with the crew in it. Uh, he helps establish that camaraderie that the, the marshals would have together. And he just makes them likable. He makes that crew likable. He makes you like uh, Gerard even more because he works with Gerard. And Gerard's likable in his own right, but the fact he's working with Cosmo and Poole and Biggs, just seeing them work together and how he contributes to the group, uh, it, it makes the movie work. And this movie has a, it has a lot of heavy-handed scenes, and without the comedic touch that he provides, it, it just wouldn't work. The best movies have a blend of everything, comedy and drama. He delivers that much-needed comedic relief uh, throughout the movie. Did such a great job, in fact, that uh, originally his character was supposed to be killed off near the end of the film. And he convinced the director to leave him alive. And then he ended up coming back for the second, you know, the, the, the sequel slash spinoff, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, uh, U.S. Marshal. So, yeah, uh, a great actor and that did a, did a lot with the, with the role. Yeah, I mean, how many? it's a rare movie where you root for the fugitive and the cops chasing him. And that's a large part because of Joey Pantoliano. 
Now, moving on to my MVP, and it's an obvious choice in this film, the Oscar winner. He won for his performance in this movie, Tommy Lee Jones as Samuel Gerard. Famously told Joey Pants no one was going to win any awards for this movie while filming it. So, <laughs> proven wrong. Um, reason is, uh, he won the award, and again, I hate for it to be so cliche, but when you call an MVP an MVP, he is the most valuable performance in the film. He, he captures the swagger and season nature of Samuel Gerard on the page. The confidence, the way he relates to the other characters, the way he tells them what to do, whether it's the U.S. Marshals and his own crew, whether he's relating to local police, the Chicago PD. He takes charge in every scene. He knows exactly what to do. And we're rooting for him, and we trust in what he's doing. We also know he has the best interest uh, of the public and even Richard Kimball. Uh, you know, it's his job to catch him, and that's at the end of the day, that's what he's doing. He's doing his job. So, got to give Tommy Lee Jones all the credit in the world for what he did in this movie. It is the career-defining performance to date, and he's had a lot of good ones. I think you, you summed it up best or earlier when you were talking about rooting for the cops and how tough that is to do, because from the get-go, you know Kimball's innocent, so you want to root for him to be proven innocent. So he is the protagonist of the film. If the role was played differently or not handled as well as Jones did in the movie, you would not like Samuel Gerard. And, and, and a little bit, you don't like him, but it's more so because you feel like he's getting close to catching Kimball. It's not because of anything his character is doing wrong or his personality. Uh, Jones does a great job of you, where you almost have two protagonists, and that's tough to do with a kind of cops versus robbers or cops versus fugitive movie. And without Jones or with a lesser actor in the part, I don't think he would have gotten that great uh, dichotomy of rooting for two characters with very, very different motives and actually that are really going after each other. So I love that choice. That's great. And I think the film dramaturgically places the who we're supposed to root for as the audience in the one-armed man, Sykes, and to be revealed, spoilers, villain, Dr. Nichols. Uh, we root against them. We also, the, the, the police that we root against is D Detective Kelly and the Chicago PD who were just, oh, he's guilty, he was convicted in the court of law, we don't give a shit, blah, blah, blah. Like, they just seem more closed off and disconnected, so we really just don't care for them much. So it enables us to root for the Marshals and Kimball. Yeah, and I guess you don't think that they're good at their jobs, so you don't respect them. And you exactly. Don't, they're just going right. through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, well, this is an open and shut case. We're not even going to try and listen and whatever. So. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, we'll move on to the stats and accolades of The Fugitive. Release date August 6, 1993, on a budget of $44 million. Opening weekend, $23.7 million, the record for the biggest August open ever at the time. And oh, yeah. Wow. This is the first film released in Chinese theaters in 40 years. So it had a couple historical achievements it made in its release. Widest release was on 2,425 theaters. Film went on to gross in the United States $183.8 million. Worldwide gross $368.8 million. Finished number three at the box office for the year. And it was number one at the box office for six weeks. So it was very successful right out of the gate. 
and ended up staying in theaters for 21 weeks. Its close wow. date was March 24th, so 147 days in theaters. It'd be on iTunes for sale, Blu-ray'd be out, and about it'd be about a month away from streaming on Netflix these days. That's crazy. Um, if you were to take the inflation into consideration, that opening weekend would be 51.7 million, and a domestic total gross of 400 million, pretty much right on the dot. Well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was a hit with a $40 million opening weekend. So The Fugitive, even today, would be a, a big hit in the land of superheroes. Uh, scores of the film, 7.8 IMDb score, cinema score, A+. Rotten Tomatoes, 96%. Audience score, 89%. And the meta score with the critics, 87 A commercial and critical hit by all accounts. It was named in various top 10 best film lists for the year. And Roger Ebert... Named it the fourth best film of 1993, giving it four stars and saying, quote, a tense, taut, expert thriller that becomes something more than that, an allegory about an innocent man in a world prepared to crush him, unquote. I was shocked to see that the Rotten Tomato score was 96%. I, I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I love the film. I think it should deserve it deserves all the critical acclaim that it gets but i didn't think it was that high that is it's rare for a live action drama to get that it's generally reserved for g films which actually g films are extinct nowadays but more so pixar and disney for an action thriller yeah that's high praise uh, awards achieved seven oscar nominations including best picture this is the only tv remake ever to be nominated for best picture wow it's kind of crazy it sat there for uh, what, almost 30 years, 25 years? Took Hollywood years. that long to reboot it. Nowadays, yeah. they reboot it five years after after the show went off the air, if not sooner. The seven Oscar nominations, including editing, uh, also cinematography, sound, score. We talked about the score earlier. But Oscar record for editing, six editors on this film. That is an Oscar record. Considering how good the movie is, it's re- remarkable that there are that many hands cutting the, 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 the picture together. Yeah, and I did come stumble across that, and it was... A little bit odd that the Academy was like, yeah, sure, this is okay for this many editors to get credit for it. Because we had talked about that before where Hollywood, uh, the act, those guilds and the mm-hmm. Academy can be really weird about that. You know, you have to do, I think it was on The Rock, actually. Um, was it The Rock? Anyway, but where a certain percentage of the of the film has to be done by a certain person. And it's, it's kind of weird. So it's kind of surprising that... Um, that so many editors were given credit. They actually earned a, a legit credit and was recognized. A legit yeah. credit, yeah, yeah. Not saying they didn't do yeah, it. Yeah, the yes, fact that they, they did enough work to get recognition, that, yeah. Right. And the director, Andrew Davis, was the only director not nominated for Best Director where the movie was nominated for Best Picture that oh. year. Oh, man. The that's... only Oscar win, though, despite all its potential going into the ceremony that night, was Tommy Lee Jones for Best Supporting Actor, Sam Gerrard. So it didn't win for anything else, which you wow. thought maybe the score would have a good shot. Uh, the score, yeah, uh, and I would say Jones's win was a big part of the reason that U.S. Marshals movie got made five years later. So. And that he was the lead in. Uh, another right. 12 wins and 31 nominations, uh, various Golden Globes, BAFTAs, so it was recognized by other major uh, award bodies as well. F- 1993 movies, uh, number one film at the box office that year, Jurassic Park. We covered that last season. Uh, Best Picture winner, Schindler's List. So the career year for Sir Steven Spielberg. Mrs. Doubtfire, Sleepings in Seattle, Groundhog Day, Tombstone, and The Firm rounding out some of the films of the year. Top TV shows, the number one show in the Nelson rating, 60 Minutes, followed by Home Improvement and Seinfeld and Roseanne. 
<laughs> Great TV, man. Yeah, it's man. Awesome. Emmy winners, drama, picket fences, and comedy, the Cheers spinoff, Frasier. 1993 songs and number one Billboard song of the year, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. And the Grammy winner, song of the year, Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen. That was featured most prominently, of course, in the 1993 film Philadelphia with Oscar winners Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice. 1993 prices. A new house was $113,000. Average rent was $532. A gallon of gas was $1.16. An average movie ticket was $4.14. And a new car was $12,750. I mean, it doesn't really seem like it's that long ago, but there is as almost... No, let me think here. Yeah, there's as much time separated from today to The Fugitive being released as there was from The Fugitive being released as a film to it as a TV series going off of the air. Wow. So you think about that, yeah. From it, see, The gap from 1967 to 1993 seems so much longer than the gap from 93 to today. I don't know why that is, but that just weird trick. Just don't that, look at it the same way with the numbers. Um, yeah, you don't. Events of the year, first bombing and attack on the World Trade Center, the Waco siege ends in a deadly fire, NAFTA is passed by the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and President Clinton becomes president. All right, moving on to our favorite scenes and lines from the film. Cool cool stuff in this movie, uh, being that it's an action thriller. Uh, a lot of cool scenes uh, with great characters in it, so let's kick things off with your honorable mentions, Warren. First honorable mention, Saves the kid from being misdiagnosed in the hospital. Okay, that's a good one, yeah. That, that um, good. Because that is the moment where we in the audience, we are all in with Kimball. We love this guy, and we will follow him into the gates of hell, as Christopher Moltisanti says to Tony Soprano. We are all, we are with you, Richard. And when he does that, we love him. I would say we already do love him, especially whenever he uh, tries to save the uh, the officer from the bus. Everybody else says, you know, Screw yeah, this! And yeah, he's got out a couple. That's such the leading man, Tom Cruise. Like that's that's why we root for massive amounts of empathy. Right. Those those are the heroes we look up to. Humanizes so great. Yeah, yeah man. Um, another honorable mention is after the bus crash scene when all the cops show up, and of course we are introduced to Sam Gerard and his team of U.S. Marshals. Mm. Love that intro. That was actually my runner-up scene. It's mainly because of the way Tommy Lee Jones plays it. It's a masterful performance, just like it is through the entire movie. And one thing we neglected to mention earlier was that he improvised a great deal of his dialogue from this for this film. And when I was watching it, I was watching it late at night, and I turned the subtitles on. And I think the subtitles go by the script or something very close to it. So when, especially when Tommy Lee Jones was talking, you would see the subtitles that would come up. But there would just be a few words off, or here and there, he would add something on to so many of his, uh, uh, to so much of his dialogue, and it kind of gave you an idea of a, a little glimpse into how much maybe he did really improvise. But in this scene, especially, I love it when he shows up and he's almost kind of timid and kind of takes a step back. Excuse me, Sheriff. I'm Deputy United States Marshal Samuel Gerard. I'd like to talk uh, to you. I'll be with you in just a minute. Okay. 
he he knows he's got the biggest gun in the room. Like he he he's experienced. He's the old bull. He's not Russian. You know what I mean? He's like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna trump you anyway. So we're gonna let you finish your little parade, and then I'm gonna take over. And he sells the hell out of it. The the prisoners are all dead. And the only thing checkpoints are gonna do is get a lot of good people frantic around here and flood my office with calls. Well, shit, sheriff. I'd hate to see that happen. So I guess I'll take over your investigation. <laughs> On what authority? Governor of the state of Illinois, the United States Marshal's Office, 5th District, Northern Illinois. I love a, an opening scene, an introduction scene, and this is the opening scene for Gerard. That, that's why it was my runner-up. You and the sucker for first impressions. Uh, next honorable mention is when Kimball gets to the hospital after he's escaped, and it's just like a montage of him like repairing his wound. You kind of see how he's making do. He shaves. He like eats that guy's breakfast when he's sleeping in the hospital. He's like scrounging down the eggs and chugging the orange juice. He, and he like he throws on the scrubs and starts walking around like a doctor, and he totally is believable. I just love how he throws it all together, and you start to kind of see how he's going to manage life at this point, given that he's gotten away. So got to give that, that, that little sequence a mention. Well, and then it also caps off with him walking down the hall past a police officer because this movie does a great job of he is just barely a a couple of steps, sometimes not barely a step ahead of the marshals. And he's getting out of that hospital as the police are already there, thanks to the directions of Sam Gerard. But the, the officer's like, hey, Doc, we're looking for a prisoner from that bus train wreck a couple hours ago. Might be hurt. Uh, what does he look like? Six one, one eighty, brown hair, brown eyes, beards. Anyone like that around? Every time I look in the mirror, pal. Except for the beard, of course. Yeah, I love that. Such a good moment. I mean, the balls to do that, and um, just it kind of yeah. ca- caps off that sense. Great. Kimball's great at hiding right in plain view under people's noses. He's so ballsy, people just don't expect him to be doing what he's doing, and for it to really be Richard Kimball. Uh, and my last honorable mention is when the marshals are talking to Dr. Nichols and he says... I mean, how smart could he be, really? Is he as smart as you are? Smarter. And then it cuts to Kimball living and playing detective or, or like really, you know, it's like a montage of him being detective and Gerard pursuing him. And that great James Newton Howard score kicks in and the, the fugitive theme is playing and it just kind of goes back and forth between the two characters showing us what's going on and kind of moves the story along. That is my favorite scene. That's your winner? Yeah, the montage of it because he's, it's more so him, you know, plays off of the music, which I think is just, I mean, they snuck in a montage in this film. You don't realize you're watching a montage, but it totally is. It's an eloquent montage, though. It's not in your face. Right. It's really a well done art- artistically. Yeah, this isn't like Rocky Four level montage, which those are great in their own way. Uh, this is, yeah, very, very subtly done, more speaks to the intelligence of his character without having to say a lot, mm-hmm. you know, where he kind of creates his own id badge yeah. as the as the worker and starts investigating the prosthetics and you know he's now that he's created a little bit of separation is a lot of that by design from sam gerard he wants him to relax a little bit he's starting to dig into follow his wife's killer but yeah that sequence of for the montage yeah, yeah it's I mean, great man yeah one honorable mention for me uh and you may have actually had this is a little bit higher but uh it's another Deputy Gerard scene. Uh, it's whenever they are sitting in the, I, I guess it's kind of a war room, so to speak, and they're listening to the phone call that Kimball makes on the payphone. And, and they it's put the way together that, it's the L train in Chicago. Yeah, and it's yes, not even St. though Louis. he's 
Yeah, even though he says it's St. Louis. Yeah, so that was, I did have that as an honorable mention. And kind of the, it also shows the camaraderie between the marshals. It's like, uh, you know, how he's always right because he's the big dog. And then he ends up being wrong about that, about how, how did they know it was the L train. But uh, it, mm. it shows his intelligence as, you know, his character too. But at the same time, the, uh, the playfulness uh, as they're working between the marshals. Yeah, I love the, the the banter and the relationships. I mean, even the way that Newman's kind of the young rookie, Joey Pants is the smartass, has his pull. They're like the season sidekicks with Gerard, and then Gerard's just kind of the head honcho. It's funny as hell. I mean, the, the, those actors just do such a great job working off each other. And any scene where they're together, I almost enjoy watching them more than anyone else in the movie because it's just so yeah. entertaining. And I guess that's why they made uh, no their own U.S. Marshals movie. Yeah, they got, they got so. their own movies. I'm tapped out on my favorite scenes. What was your runner-up? My runner-up, and I can't believe you'd even mention it, is the ambulance chase culminating in the jump at the dam. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. That should at least be an honor. It should have been an honorable mention. I felt like... Yeah, man, I mean, Gerard's in the helicopter, of, you know, it's he's in hot pursuit. Kimball's, you know, uh, just... Like miraculously evades them by somehow getting in the like. Remember when the the ambulance stops and the chopper comes out the end of the tunnel and you're like, okay, oh, uh-huh. this fucked. And then he somehow yeah. squirms out of that. And you know it, they have him in the going through the tunnels and, and and then you have the great exchange between Gerard and Kimball that leads to him jumping off the dam. Yeah, I can see why. There's a reason I didn't pick that. I'll tell you a little bit later in the podcast why I didn't choose uh, that scene specifically. Um, interesting little nugget of information about that scene. They used dummies. Uh, obviously, Harrison Ford or a stunt double didn't jump off the dam. They used six dummies, uh, costed at $12,000 a piece for that leap off of, uh, of the dam there. And when you watch it, man, it's, I hate to say, we only focus on the positive of the films, but man, it's so clear that it's a dummy. In one well, not of, not one, is it one a dummy, shots. but I don't, it's one of the most iconic scenes from the film, if not the most iconic action sequence. Uh, but what I don't understand is why did the writers think, like you watch that and you're like, he's dead, man. There's no way you can survive. And I know the cops even say that to Tommy Lee Jones, Sam Gerard's character. They're like, we don't need anything. He, this guy's dead. I mean, it's one in a million, but really when you watch it, there's no fucking way he's still alive. No, absolutely zero chance. And yeah, you know, part of it's suspension of disbelief. It's a action movie, and you know if you think about the other movies that direct the director Andrew Davis has done, I'm sure that was a toned down version of some of the other wacky shit. I mean, even think about the action movies you see today, like Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw, and all the over the top bullshit that that they get away with on there. It's just it's suspension of disbelief. But mm, you know, yeah. in, in a movie that feels so grounded in reality, it was kind of like, oh come on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's my runner-up. My winner is fucking bus crash, train derailment, prisoner escape, man. <laughs> I actually, I'm, I'm sorry. I did have that as an honorable mention as well. Yeah, you, you got to throw that in there. I, 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 I didn't mention it, but yeah, that's clearly. To me, that's when the movie starts. Like, all the other shit is just getting everything set up, and now here we go. This is the movie. Let's have fun. Let's, let's see. Let's enjoy the ride. 
and it's just iconic, you know, just even the, the jump that Kimball makes from the, the bus when the train hits, yeah. Yeah, and, and remember they had that rumor, like, well, Harrison Ford really jumped off the bus, blah, blah, <laughs> yeah, blah. And right. it's like bullshit. Like, you know, we did, it was superimposed, but it's still, for the time, the special effects, it looked really good. Yeah, it doesn't age as bad as you think, and maybe they've digitally touched it up, you know, after well, It always 25. helps in the heart of the shots real, though. That's a good point, yeah. So uh, let's move into our uh, favorite lines from the film. Some great quotes in there, especially from Sam Gerard. I got a couple yeah, here. Yeah, dude, holy shit. Gerard owns the show, man. All right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick off the honorable mentions this time, and uh, I did limit it to, to one here. Uh, oh, shit. I, want, I wanted to save it. There, there's some others I could have thrown in here. All right. One, one is um, the exchange whenever uh, Gerard is – talking to the sheriff about, um, you know, catching a fish. And he says, Guys, fish food. Okay, get a cane pole. Go catch a fish and eat him. Like, he is just so quick with the one-liners back to, uh, you know, defending him as far as let's search for Kimball. And it kind of makes you think it's like, would any police officer just be like, oh, well, he's dead and not search for him? No, everyone's going to want to find a body. I mean, it, it seemed kind of weird, but yeah. credit to Gerard for the quick one He's like, well, it should make him easy to find. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I did love this exchange, though. Um, it was between Gerard and the detectives that originally charged Kimball. It's at this point of the film where Gerard's starting to dig more into uh, the murder and what happened. He's starting to kind of believe Kimball a little bit. He said, you know, he asked the detectives, why did Richard Kimball kill his wife? And like, well, he did it for the money. So what do you mean he did it for the money? He's a doctor. He's already rich. And they're like, yeah, but but she was more rich. It's like that's a good excuse, and it just strikes to the core of the incompetency or the perceived incompetency of the detectives. The automated nature of police to just slap a formula, which is very realistic, I'm sad to say. A lot of big it, city it is. police operate I mean, They just want way. to close a case, especially in Chicago. And when you watch it early in the film, you're like, oh, yeah, that, that seems logical, especially when you attach it to the 911 phone call. Oh, of course, do it for the money. It seems like a logical conclusion, but when Gerard questions them about it, you're like, "Wow, they didn't really—they didn't do their job at all. They—they they were bad." So anyway, I, I do like that exchange. So that was my only honorable mention. What? What? What did you have? Uh, honorable mention. I said one earlier. You find this man. You find this man. Love that line. Uh, and then Gerard really uh, uh, owns most of them, but I have another one. When uh, Poole is looking at the sheriff after the bus crash and they see that there's empty handcuffs and she's like... Care to revise your statement, sir? What? Do you want to change your bullshit story, sir? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I, I like lo- that. I lo- love that line. And then my last honorable mention is when Gerard, at the end of the movie, and he's looking across at Kimball and, he go- and he's like, it's over. And you know, I'm glad. I need the rest. Yeah, finally getting to see them have a good exchange like that, and then in the car where he takes off the handcuffs, it was it was cathartic to see that. And they don't really even bother trying to sum it up; they just kind of drive away. But that that was good. All right, moving on to runner up. What's yours? Um, going back to the introduction of Gerard, this is a little bit after, like the morning after. Uh, he's kind of barking out orders. They're kind of got their little makeshift hub set up, and. Um, He's told everybody to do something in, in the, the Marshall crew, except for Newman. And Newman's just kind of sitting there, staring off. He doesn't even really even look at it. He's like, Newman? Yes, What are you doing? I'm thinking. Well, think me up a cup of coffee and a chocolate donut with some of those little sprinkles on top. Will you, as long as you're thinking. 
that's <laughs> yeah, a great line, yeah. I actually forgot about it, and I, I should have mentioned it. I do love that line, and you laugh every time you hear it. My runner-up is when they're at the dam in the tunnel before Kimball jumps, and he says, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. That was my winner. That was your winner? Yep. Oh, uh, well, you, you know, know the old, old expression. expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. Yeah, because it is, like, so quotable, and it's used. I use it all the time. Uh, there, you know, I pull up a gif of Tommy Lee Jones with his hands up saying the, I, you know, that line, and because of the high usage rate, it's the most quotable from the film. It had to be the, yeah, my favorite. that's, that's kind of your template. You always go for usage rate. I, I, I don't know how you didn't mention my winner then. My winner. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. How do you not? That is the greatest line in this movie that monologue it, it might have won him the oscar that's true that's really good i feel like i just I, i'd done so much with the introduction of gerard and i had some other gerard quotes it just i had to throw in the i don't care i mean the, again it's a it's a great performance by gerard i'm gonna you're good some stuff's gonna fall through the cracks i mean i'm sure there's some that we left out here and even that's kind of part of the reason i didn't include um the damn scene from the for, for my, my runner-up or my favorite it's because I included it as my favorite line. I didn't. I kind of didn't want to double dip there because mm, they kind of tie in together. So yeah. I kind of left that a little on the table. All right. Okay. All right. Uh, recasting the film with today's stars. This is sneakily a great ensemble cast. Like you yeah, watch them. Like we were talking about. Like okay, who are we going to recast? I'm like, I oh, will probably just do. Well, you got to do Kimball Gerard his wife, Dr. Nichols Sykes. And, and there was, so you just keep going through. So there's quite it's, a few it's hard to narrow people. I mean, you can't recast everybody. Really a lot of memorable performances, a lot of stars early in their career, only in a couple scenes. So we kind of had to stick with the main cast. Some of the DQs that were on the edge, detective Kelly, who kind of spearheads represents the Chicago police department in their pursuit or conviction and pursuit of Kimball uh, and working with the, the marshals. He's in a handful of scenes, doesn't quite qualify. Also, Dr. Ann Eastman, played by Juliana Moore, only in two scenes. And then Jane Lynch as Dr. Kathy Wallen. She's only in, what, one, two scenes. So we can't recast those, even though they are memorable. Yeah, you just they're memorable because you look back now what those actors have become. But they had small roles. So, yeah. all right, so we're, let's start out with, there's, so there's five marshals if you include Gerard. So let's start out with casting his four teammates, uh, if you will, starting with... Uh, his four underlings, the Gerard and heirs. Well, I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're colleagues. Dude, I will no, say. no, he is, the, he is the agent in charge. He's the head He honcho. is, but it's insulting to call a U.S. Marshal an underling. So let's start with uh, one of his All colleagues. Right. Let's start with, uh, let's start with uh, Poole. Poole, I wanted to go... Um, I thought of Ala Davis... But you'd have to have more scenes, give her a bigger part. Um, so I thought of Issa Rae from... Uh, Issa Rae from... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, from... Issa uh, Rae, yeah, sorry. Samsonite. I was way off. I knew it started with an S, though. 
From Insecure. Insecure. Yeah. But I ended up going with Octavia Spencer because she has a small okay. part in Shape and Water, too. So I, I feel like that's a good little marriage there. Having a, And this is a movie. This movie would get star power. Yeah, I mean, she yeah, definitely in Shape of Water. She had a good role there. But we do have to preface by saying we you know, we are going to pick bigger names. We've talked about this before. So going into that's that, what I'm saying, though, this is a, yeah. this being the movie of the fugitive though, with the TV history, you're, you're, it's, it's, is a franchise, even though it's an underutilized franchise by Hollywood, at least up to this point, I'm sure they'll reboot it here soon, but it, it, it would get big names. You, you would get yep. the uh, big names for sure. Yeah. And speaking of which, uh, I actually did pull a big name. I went with Tessa Thompson. That's pool. Oh, that is really good. Damn it. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's do uh, Biggs. Do Biggs? Yeah, Biggs. I thought of T.J. Miller, but I went with Michael Rappaport. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit, dude. Oh, man, that's so the good. Michael Rappaport would be fucking great. Oh, God. That's great. Oh, man, he do- I love Michael Rappaport. That's awesome. He's so funny. Ah, oh, fuck. Uh, I went with Walton Goggins as my Biggs. Okay, yeah. all right. A little more serious role. I, yeah, I'm going to hand it to you. Rappaport is much not, better. Not as, not as well suited for Biggs. I'd almost make him uh, someone else, but yeah. My Cosmo, uh, I went with Sebastian Stan. Okay, all right. Haven't seen a lot of him comedically, but I mean, he could fill the shoes. Well, if you think about him, if you've seen I Tanya, you know he yeah. or see him in a non Bucky Barnes role. He's got some edge. He could you know grow. A, you have a mustache. And- yeah, he he was in that uh, Nicole Kidman film, what Destroyer. He played a. Uh, he was in that with her. That was a kind of a gritty L.A. movie. He he actually surprise does have some surprising uh, comedic timing. So okay. I, I not, not an obvious choice, but I, once I saw it, thought of it, I saw it. So who did you have? Uh, I went with Simon Pegg. Okay, Mission I Impossible. He's kind of he's yeah. great at being one of the crew. Of course, you would make him more of the non-action guy. You know, kind of play to that. He'd be the guy in the van on the computer. Yeah, that's the thing is you always look at him as like the nerdy type, not like a second in command. He's not going to be wielding a gun. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know I, I like that though. It's still good, but yeah, he's more of the less threatening type, so to speak. Uh, and then finally, Newman. Newman, I thought of Michael Sierra, but I went with Miles Teller. Miles Teller. Um, I see. I don't know. I feel like he's too much of a badass. You know, uh-huh. he's. I think he tries to be one. Have you seen Too Old to uh, Die Young? Uh, that is the uh, worst Gosling impression I've ever seen. And he's a good actor, but I don't, he is. No, no, no part of him says badass to me. I'm sorry. I try. I saw him play one. It doesn't work. Yeah, I went with um, a little, I feel like someone who could play a little nerdier, uh, or not nerdy, I should say, but a little more green around the gills, so to speak. Like Miles Teller is like very, comes off as competent. Uh, but I've never seen. But Grant, I mean, there's similar uh, type of role. He could come off as competent, but still a little green around the gills. Like he's not totally uh, experienced yet. He could still play someone young. Yeah, I went with Ezra Miller. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's really good. Flash Justice League, hilarious. Yeah, he was in the Fantastic Beasts films and kind of had that. Uh, you know, he could he he has the, the range to play. Uh, kind of reserved, but very green. One of uh, his person. first things I saw him in was Californication. He played uh, Becky's boyfriend, you know, Hank Moody's daughter. So, yeah, he's uh, that was one of the first things I saw him in. But, yeah, per- perfect casting. I like it. Thank you, thank you. All right, so let's get into Sykes, the one-armed man. Who did you have? Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. He's such a great kind of go-to villain. But, you know, he's or a little or, or the creep, you know. He's, yeah, but he's, he's really good. he's creepy just without having to say anything. If you just see him lurking in an alley or behind a corner, and that's like perfect for the Sykes and the one-armed man. Mm. So I was thinking of somebody that was a little older that could play like someone who's retired police, kind of how that character is. He spent like, I can't remember, 
he had like a 30 year career or something like that. He, he had a long career as a police officer before going into private security. So I went with someone a little older. I went with John Turturro. Wow, it's really good. You're kicking my ass on this recasting session. I feel like that. That's excellent. You got the Michael Rappaport thing. That was really good. I yeah, love John Turturro is great. Though. I think a night of though, he'd be really, he'd be perfect. Yeah, not exactly. And Turturro, I mean, he's fucking, he's great. It's John Turturro. All right, uh, Doctor Nichols went with Damian Lewis from uh, Billions, Homeland. Mm, yeah. Oh man, I love that. That's excellent. He's, Dude, great. That's he's great at playing someone that's really educated and wealthy and smart. And then also someone you like, but could stab you in the back. I think he'd be yes, perfect for the reveal. Exactly. Yeah. That would, oh, man, that's really I did good. think of Christoph Waltz. He's like the easy go-to, but you he, know, yeah. yeah, it was, I did consider that, but no, you, no, you made the right choice. That that's really good. Um, this one kind of stumped me because that's a hard line to, oh, to I was walk. stumped for a while before I came up with Damian Lewis. Yeah, do you like the friend, someone you can trust? But at the end, he's like, oh shit, he he's the bad guy. Um, I ended up going with Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, almost a he's he's almost disarms you too much. Like he's you actually the twist would be more surprising with him in the role. All right, uh, Helen Kimball. Uh, yeah, not a lot to do here. I actually ended up casting a bigger actress than I probably would ever play the role. And to be honest, I was a little stumped because I just didn't know. Who I would think, do it. I think again, because of the cachet of this film and it being the fugitive, you could get a, a big actor, to, uh, actress to come in and, and just be the face of the victim. I mean, that does carry a lot of exposure in in itself. Um, I thought of, I don't know. Do you, you want to go or you want me to, uh, no, you go ahead. All right. I thought of Sarah Paulson, Emmy winner from, you know, uh, People vs. O.J., uh, you know, American Horror Story. Great actress. Just amazing. Uh, most recently, Ocean's 8. Um, but I went with Natasha. I hope I say this right. Uh, Natasha McElone. She's from Californication. Yeah, plays, yeah. Plays uh, Karen. She I never, was in the I, I've never been show. able to pronounce her name right. Yeah, yeah I was. Uh, <laughs> she was in the Truman Show. She plays the uh, the the... the focus of Jim Carrey's obsession or his character's obsession. He's in love with her. And she most recently starred in designated survivor with Kiefer Sutherland. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I went with probably too big of a name. Yeah. My, I do mine like is that. somebody who would do it. I feel like she would do it. Yeah. But would be a great fit for it too. Yeah. yeah, yeah Na- perfect. Natasha McElone or, you know, however you say her name. Yeah. That's good. I went with Jennifer Connelly. Oh yeah. All right. <laughs> now she, she, she's the right type for it. Uh, because, you know, when you think about the age of Richard Kimball and where he it's is okay. in his career. You don't have to make me feel good about that pick. I know it was not great. Um, it's just, she would never play the role. Um, your, your, your choice was, was much better. But I could see her in the part. But she's just because she's just a super talented actress. She could play any part. All right. So let's get into uh, the two leads of the film, uh, starting with Deputy Sam uh, Gerard, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of excited for this one, so I'll kick it off. Um, I, I didn't really go back and forth with too many people on this one. I thought of this person. I was like, yes, they would crush it. Who could step in and bring their own edge to the role without seeming like a Tommy Lee Jones impersonator? Robert Downey Jr. Ooh, and he was in the sequel, U.S. Marshals. Was he? Oh, yeah. shit. I didn't know that. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you throw Downey in there. I'd love to see what he would do, and, and I'm anxious to see what he does post Tony Stark. So, uh, fast-talking, um, competent. Yeah, he's perfect for it. I mean, definitely would be in discussion if they were recasting that role in particular. 
uh, if it wasn't a reboot, like if they actually brought Sam Gerrard back and, and, and recasted it. Uh, I thought a Harvey Keitel, like years ago, mm. he would have been perfect. Yeah. Not oh, now, yeah. though. Nowadays, man, I'm going star power with this. Denzel fucking Washington. <laughs> My man. He'd be great in it, dude. I mean, uh, yeah. think about him in The Siege and a handful of other films. He's so competent and speaks with conviction and is so capable and is a great leader and just takes charge and takes action. And, and Denzel would, I dare I say, do just as good of a job as Tommy Lee Jones, if not better. Yeah, he would. Uh, he would definitely win an Oscar if he were to to obtain. Mm-hmm. If he would have had this role, that's, that's absolutely awesome. Denzel is built for it. Yeah. All right, Doctor Richard Kimball, the uh, the lead character, uh, the protagonist, the, the hero of the film. Uh, who did you have? Uh, thought of John Hamm and Matt Damon. You know the ideal leading man type because I feel like Richard Kimball is at that age where he's not old. He's not young. He's just. You know, a man. Um, He's an experienced, venerated doctor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But I, star power, man. I went with Tom Cruise. Cruise. Yeah, man. Perfect timing, action, drama, a different spin (sighs) on the type of movies he's doing now, kind of like Edge of Tomorrow, where he plays someone who does the necessary action he needs to, but he's not, like, killing people or knocking people out, but he's capable and he gets the job done. I think it would be a great role for Cruise. If I was his reps, I'd be selling for him to do this role, get him back in the Oscar race. Um. I, this is going to sound mean, but it's like I can't see like Tom Cruise as a surgeon because I see him too much as an action star. And I feel like it would, it would, the yeah, movie. Eyes would, Wide Shut played a surgeon. Eh, I mean, yeah, that, that was a different. He's played everything that, at this point. That wasn't, that, that wasn't an action like movie. Tom Cruise has was, played a samurai dude. He's played everything. I'm not saying that was a good choice either. He chose poorly. Hey man, you back off last samurai. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like it would go less thriller, you know, tension movie and more into like just straight up action, you know, ridiculous sequences, mission impossible. Like he would have probably jumped off the. You're underestimating the cruise missile threat, brother. Here's the thing. Mm. Here's the thing is if he would have made that movie, he would have wanted to do his own stunt and jump off the dam for real. And he would have thought of a way to survive that. Or or not and become a a martyr. No, he probably would have like. He probably would have had like one of those flight suits on and just like, you know, parasailed away or whatever the hell Dude. Uh, landed on a boat, drove off or yeah, some shit. Whatever. But, he's, he's a badass. So I like him in the role. So whatever. Um, well, I, OK, I did pick another badass, so I can't really knock you too much. Uh, but like I, 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 I want to kind of one of the balance. I picked Keanu Reeves. Another great action star, probably the two greatest action stars of this generation. We just casted it as fucking Richard Kimball. I know, which is kind of crazy because, like, Richard Kimball in here is, like, they're not an action star. But Tom Cruise and Keanu Reeves can play reluctant action heroes in movies. Yeah, like, I, I feel like Reeves would be more of the, the kind of Kimball, like, you know, someone who would, Kimball, you'd, you'd be, be rooting for. Yeah, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, both, both are good choices. Good. Yeah, either way, you're good. All right, we'll close out the episode talking about the legacy of The Fugitive, that one of the best action thriller movies ever made. And America Film Institute has dubbed it that as well. It's included among the AFI's 1998 list of 400 greatest movies, was nominated for AFI's Top 100 Movies, and AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills, it was ranked number 33, which is the list for the Top 100 Thrillers of all time. Uh, It would have to be, I would say, I don't know who beat it out, but 
you know, 96% Rotten Tomatoes, nominated for Best Picture. How many thrillers can you really put above this film? I mean, just it's it is so impressive that it even got the accolades that it did. Uh, it really sets the bar for action films. Uh, well, I should say thrillers. It's much more than just a traditional action film. One of the things I found surprising looking at the list is it didn't make the National Film Registry that it has not been elected into that historic uh, preservation yet, which is surprising. I assume The Fugitive would be a part of that registry by now, what, almost 30 years later. Yeah, I don't know what the guidelines are for picking those. I'm sure its number will come due at some point. It's uh, it is a it's nominated for Best Picture, like we said. It's it's a classic. It'll get there one day. Yeah, one of the things that's not held in high regard about this movie is it was voted one of the worst DVDs ever. It had, if you huh? remember, the DVD like the release was awful, very bare bone, no special features. I mean, it was. A very weak DVD release. It was a very when they ranked the all-time DVD releases, like with the special features, it was one of the worst all-time. Really? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like I remember there's a lot of DVDs where you'd pop it in, and a lot of times you wouldn't even get a menu; it would just play the film. Yeah. So I and, can't, and can't you be could that skip around bad. with chapters. That's about it. I mean, it was one of the first ones I want to say. Yeah, I mean, it shit, out, it came out in '93. I mean, the DVD was probably what '96 back then. '97. So, yeah. '97. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, we mentioned it many times earlier in the episode. Uh, this film was so good, had such a great cast that they were able to spin it off into a sequel without even the main protagonist coming back. Or well, it's technically Kimble, they... just a spinoff film. It's not considered a sequel because it doesn't oh. pick up from the narrative or events of the first film. It's just those Fair characters. Enough. So we're spinning okay. off with those characters. Like Friends, they did a spinoff with Joey. It's not a sequel to Friends. It's a spinoff. So spinoff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it takes place after the fact. I guess it's not the same story. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. All right. Yeah. Spinoff. U.S. Marshals. Um, so that uh, I movie wasn't as well received. It was just kind of wasn't like as high regard as The Fugitive, but still did pretty well. Yeah, they went star power with this one. Robert Downey Jr., Wesley Snipes uh, starred along with Tommy Lee Jones, also Joey Pantoliano. Uh, came back along with the actors uh, who played Newman and Biggs, who their names hmm. forsake me at this moment. Yeah, and uh, five, it was five years after the fact. It came out in 98. Also, that came out in 1998. A little bit of a spoof from uh, from <laughs> from the, the future. Pa- the 1998 parody was a parody. Oh, yeah, spoof parody. Uh, wrongfully accused with Leslie Nielsen. It's an honor when your film is parodied by the Marlon Brando of parody actors, Leslie Nelson. Yeah. And just for fun, I watched some YouTube clips from that film and like, they kind of recreate the whole train sequence and you got like the train peeking out behind the tree because it's chasing them down. The movie's hilarious. Well, it is a classic. Yeah, it, it spoofs a lot of movies like Mission Impossible and Titanic, but the main narrative is a parody of the fugitive. And even the cover, when you look at the cover, wrong with accused, it is a, almost a shot for shot, uh, uh, parody of the Fugitive cover itself. Uh, TV series remakes. There was a short-lived one-season TV show uh, in uh, the late '90s starring Tim Daly from Wings as Richard Kimball. Uh, it didn't last very long. Oh gosh! Wow. Uh, loved Wings, but did not even remember the that 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 attempt at a reboot of the TV series. Yeah, it did not take off. And there was also a remake in in India. It was uh, in 1995. 
Uh, and we mentioned the parody film Wrongfully Accused. Uh, the movie has been referenced and spoofed in a 251 movie and TV titles. Just to give you a handful here, The Simpsons, Rugrats movie, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Men in Black 2, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Mass, Friends, Seinfeld, Sopranos, Minority Report, and Glee, just to name hmm. uh, some of the more prominent movies and TV shows to reference and spoof The Fugitive. With oddly enough, Glee uh, starred Jane Lynch. Wow. So. Yeah full circle there and you know great movies have everything it's th- this film the fugitive it's a perfect blend of heroism villainy suspense action and comic relief and i feel like all as we said earlier all the great movies and tv shows have a little bit of everything and elvis mitchell of the new york times summed it up best when he said quote turns out to be a smashing success a juggernaut of an action adventure saga that owes nothing to the past to put it simply this is a home run unquote that is going to do it for this episode of replay value thank you so much for listening Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter at ReplayValuePod. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! This has been a Waldo Pickles production.